Hey, it's episode number 11 of Presentable. I'm Jeff Fien, and today we're joined by my friend Tim Brown. He's the head of typography at Adobe, and we talk about the new variable font standard that's just been announced and what it means for responsive design on the web, performance, CSS, and the art and science of typography. Let's get right to it. All right, yeah, I got to tell you about this. This is a, a, I think it's a video game. It looks like a video game. I'm not sure there's any game to play, but it's called uh, Beam MG Drive, and it is a very, very realistic physics simulator and a driving game, I guess. But you sort of you get the car, and um, and it feels ju- and looks just like driving a car, like when you crash into stuff, and you can put it in slow mo and do these elaborate and and <laughs> remarkable like ca- car crashes. Um, I don't know. Go look it up on YouTube because there's yeah, all these me. videos. Oh, did he send you the video? <laughs> he sent me a video of all these crazy crashes. I, my, <laughs> so that's another thing my son and I do. We set up these <laughs> elaborate scenes where then a, like a semi truck will come barreling through all the, like the police blockade and cars will fly in the air and they'll explode. <laughs> right. and, and then it's all in slow-mo and it's dramatic and that's, and that's awesome. You know, that's just a regular Sunday afternoon right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, um, awesome is a good word for it. But we're here to talk about fonts. Three or four months ago now, I had our mutual friend, Jason Santa Maria on the show to talk about typography. And we talked about all sorts of things, subscription models and pricing and trends and aesthetics and all sorts. And at the end, we started speculating about the technology of web fonts and where it was heading. And in particular, we talked about how someday, wouldn't it be cool... If there was a standard way for the fonts themselves to sort of morph between the the styles of a page uh, when it was shown in different contexts. Now, it feels like this really is happening with this new variable font standard for OpenType that was announced at, uh, what conference was it? I think it was A-Type-I, yeah? A-Type-I is where we made the announcement, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, tell me about that. Well, um, so... Uh, A-Type-I, of course, is an international type conference. Uh, it's one of two big type conferences that happens every year. Uh, and it's more uh, geared toward, like, um, TypeCon is a fun place where people get together to uh, talk about type and typography. Mm-hmm. A-Type-I is uh, more of a scholarly gathering. And uh, I think it was appropriate that this announcement about variable fonts happened at that conference. But we had been working toward that announcement for nine months or something, a long, a long time. Uh, representatives from Google, Microsoft, Apple, and Adobe got together as a working group to define variable fonts. I don't remember exactly what the initiative was at the very beginning, but it was related to file size. Uh, I think Google and Microsoft really wanted to be able to have fonts on their devices that take up less space, especially that matters for um, CJK fonts. You know, if you want a regular and a bold weight of a font that has many, many glyphs in it uh, with many, many instructions about how glyphs get combined and and accented and things, right? Right, You need... Yeah, that's a lot of file size, and so how do you bring that down? The CJK fonts, you mean um, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, where the gl- the set of glyphs can be tens and tens of thousands of characters. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's let's back it up. the The announcement is that there's these this new or new again technology being proposed for OpenType fonts that allow variability in the font, 
right? So I have a, I, I grabbed the definition from the announcement that says, open type font variations allowing type designers to interpolate a font's entire glyph set or individual glyphs along up to 64,000 axes of variation. So what that sounds to me like is uh, one font file, but could be, could be used for bold, condensed, extra bold, light, hairline, all of those different styles, all contained inside of one font file that you can then somehow manipulate programmatically. Does that sound about right? Yes. Okay. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> it is. It is very complicated. I mean, we, we have some history to, we had some history and we still have uh, as we make the decisions that are still ahead of us, uh, we have history to lean on, right? The multiple master typefaces that Adobe developed years ago, um, also um, Apple's uh, GX, TrueType GX format. Like people, designers and, and engineers have a history in thinking about this kind of flexibility in type. And in fact, that thinking, although it didn't produce uh, files that designers and ordinary people use, like fonts that they put in their documents mm -hmm. un until until now, it did make its way into type design tools. So type designers for decades now have been thinking in this kind of open-ended, flexible way. They just pick points in that flexible space and release static variations of the family that they've designed. So if I was a type designer... And I open up some, what, what are some of the tools that type designers are using? There's FontForge, right? Isn't that one? Yeah, I think the popular ones nowadays are RoboFont. RoboFont. Yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of tools. I'm not a type designer. Right, right. There are a lot of tools that are like script tool, script-based things, you know, command line stuff uh, that you sort of stitch together in a, in a pipeline. Uh -huh. Adobe offers some of those tools to the the FDK for producing fonts after you've designed them. But mm -hmm. one of the tools that's that's directly related to this kind of flexibility is Eric Van Blocklin's Superpolator. And if you look <laughs> if you look at that if you look at the website for Superpolator, you'll get the visuals of, of some of what variable fonts would be able to do. You know, it's it's this two-dimensional graph almost, it looks like, where as you choose a point on the graph, the outlines of the font change because you've defined this, not just a single drawing of a, of a typeface, but a, a space in which that drawing flexes in different ways. Right, right. So this idea of, well, interpolation, meaning I have this outline, I've drawn like a lowercase a, I'm very happy with it. This is the way I want my a to look in my, in my font. Uh, then I use tools like this to say like, well, just make me a bold version. And I want it to kind of expand this way. And you look at that and kind of you know, I would imagine do a lot of messing and fussing with bits and say, all right, so the, the software brought me over here to a bold A. I'm going to tweak it like this, and now I'm going to make that my A, right? And that's part of the process of doing some of type design, and there's a few tools that allow you to do that. And what I think it sounds like now is that we want to take that notion of interpolation, start with one, go to other points in space of, of condensed and bold and things like that, and give that control to the web designers within the context of the outlines of the fonts. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so who is all behind this? Now, you said Adobe is involved, Google, Microsoft, is that right? And Apple. And Apple. Hey, look at that. Apple doing stuff with standards. Who would have thought? <laughs> you know, as we get 
to talking about what's ahead and with variable fonts, um, Apple has been very active. Uh, Safari has a nightly build now that can use variable fonts. And Already. The guy who's been working on some of that has also been talking with us interested web designers about what we want the CSS to look like. Hmm. Well, that's a... That seems like an improvement in, in communication. Um, I know. I mean, I, I shouldn't be so hard on them. It's, it's just there's so much, it tends to be so much secrecy behind them. But they've done a really remarkable job with WebKit over the years, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, you can take positions as to whether WebKit has advanced as quickly as it can or in the right directions. But the fact is, it has remained. There, there is some level of transparency around that. Doing the same thing with open source Swift. Right. So, right. So you get some sense of where they're going and, and some look under the covers there, but, um, but that's good. So that, so Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Adobe seems like that, that would be a, a sort of groundswell towards getting this stuff implemented pretty quickly. But I would imagine there's a lot of hurdles to getting there. Yeah. So what we've done together so far is to write the, uh, a new version of the open type specification that mm. defines what these fonts are. And so now we need a few things. We need fonts themselves, right? We need type designers to produce variable fonts. And there's a lot to think about there. Not so much in terms of actually how to make them, because like I said, their tools, type design tools are already geared toward making these kinds of fonts. And as part of the announcement at A-Type-I, our working group released tools for converting an existing type family into a variable font. David Lemon, head of the type group at Adobe, did this demonstration right on stage. So it's going to be relatively easy for type designers to make variable fonts. The question is, how do they price them? Do they offer the entire range of flexibility only or slices of it in different ways? Like there's a lot of trial and error that's going to have to happen in terms of making the fonts available to people. So you could take uh, all of the various like individual open type files, right? This is one, this one's regular, this one's bold, this one's extra bold. And you can then use a tool to combine them all and, and essentially be done and just say, like, now they're all in one font file? Yes, because that's how, that's how a lot of type designers already work, mm. right? The, 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 the way that, now I'm not a type designer, but the way that this kind of flexibility in a typeface works is that you have, let's say, the regular version of your A, right, that you were talking about, and you have the bold. And the point structure of those glyphs is the same. So if you if you were to take the shape and convert it to outlines in Illustrator so that you see all the nodes along that outline and all the, the Bezier handles for changing the curves. The points are the same in the regular A and the bold A. Right. They're just they're just shifted a little bit so that the, the shape becomes thicker for the bold A. And the same is true for the condensed and the expanded and the lightweights. A variable font takes these individual sets of points and turns that into the the genesis shape, which is like the, the the regular, let's say, and then instructions for finding all the ways that those points change as you go out on different axes from that starting point. I don't know if that was clear enough. Like I said, I'm not a type designer. The genesis points. That sounded pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think I made that word up. There's probably a technical term for it. No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, all of that, right? Like all of that foundation there. What is it really like? I'm a web designer listening to this. Why should I be excited about this work? Okay. So I want to start by talking about print because I think it's easier to, to start to understand what variable fonts will do for you if you think about how they make print design different. Okay. So you have, let's say, a full type family. It's got bolds and lightweights and everything in between. It's got condensed versions and wide versions. 
what variable fonts will do for a print designer is give you infinite in-betweens. So if you've got a bold and it's a little too bold and a semi-bold, it's not quite bold enough, you'd be able to get something in between. And not in a way that's like cheesy, you know, like word art stretching <laughs> stretching the font. Mm, this, is right. a, this is an in-between that the type designer is comfortable with. So it really looks good. That's what you get in print, those in-betweens. On the web, there are additional benefits, and I break those up into short-term and long-term gains. Short-term on the web, we're going to see reduced file sizes. So if you want a type family where you're using the regular and the bold and maybe the condensed in a couple of different weights for headings, the file size is going to be much smaller than including those four or more separate font files. And it's only one request. So that, that kind of savings is going to speed up websites. For the same reasons, we're going to see a lot more typographic richness on websites because it's cheaper in terms of file size, right? You can, you can get mm. all this variety for the same amount of kilobytes, for the same amount of requests. So you could take you could take the four or six or eight or whatever individual files, move them into one and compress across them, which should help tremendously, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a lot of redundancy in that data, mm -hmm. I would imagine. But when you, when you talk about requests, that's a big deal too, right? We look at performance on web pages as, as a factor of two things. One is the bandwidth it takes to move a file back and forth, but it is also the number of individual files that you have to, as you say, request from the server and get back. And those all require like DNS lookups and negotiations and HTTP overhead and stuff like that. But this is why we do things like CSS sprites, right? Where you take a whole bunch of mm -hmm. icons, put them into one image, and then use CSS to show a little window over each one of the icons you want to show on a various part of the page, because it kind of pushes everything into one file that you can, again, compress and send as one. Right. So that's, that's the same basic idea that we're, we were talking about for just the performance level of these, of these font files that can be then variable to different widths. And there's more to performance too. Like there's all of that. I, I like to split performance into two aspects. When you're talking about performance of web fonts, right? There's the actual logistics, which is what we just talked about. And then there's the perception of speed. And I think that variable fonts will help with the perception of speed as well. Because, you know, when you load up a website that uses web fonts, the web font is an asset. It's got to come down. So there has to be some period of time where the person trying to read this website does not have the font yet. What do they see? They either see nothing, which frustrates people because it feels like they're waiting forever. You mean that the text just isn't there? The text is like invisible. You just see a background color. Right, right. Or you see what's called a fallback font, which is a font that's already on a person's device that's put there temporarily until the web font loads and then it switches to the web font. That's frustrating to people because I heard from a guy I was giving a presentation a month ago at a meetup and he said, well, what's the deal with, I'm, I'm reading an article and then halfway through it, it, it jumps and, and I've lost my place, right? Yeah. So the way that variable fonts will help with this is uh, these operating system makers, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, every device we have will have a variable font on it as part of the operating system. And as web designers, we can take that variable font that's present for everybody, whatever it is, and use it as a fallback for our web fonts by matching its metrics to the metrics of our web fonts. So that when the fallback font is replaced with our web font, you don't have that big jump because it's kind of the same size. It's exactly positioned in a very similar way. It's X height, right? The, the height of its lowercase letters. 
is the same and its line spacing is the same. If you can match that up, then the shift from fallback fonts to web fonts is really smooth. Ah. And, you know, and people get the benefit of being able to read immediately. They don't have to wait for the web font. Right. So you essentially lay down almost like a wireframe of the text on the page and then layer on the font as it arrives. Yeah. Yeah. So like that plus the other performance gains, the more logistical gains, uh, mean that we're going to see some faster, better websites. And I think one of the other short-term gains that we'll see is that faux bold isn't going to be as much of an issue anymore. And by that, you mean making something bold just by like... So uh, a lot of, for performance reasons, a lot of uh, developers will put a web font in in their site and they'll just use the regular. They won't include the bold because that's another however many K, it's another request for another web font. Let's just put the regular in there. But if the markup calls for bold, what browsers will do is take the regular width web font, you know, the regular, uh, the regular, and they'll stretch it to make all of its strokes a little thicker so that it looks bold. But that's not what the type designer intended, right? They designed a bold that is, you know, when you look at a faux bold, it looks like somebody thickened every part of a letter. And that's not what type designers do. When type designers are designing a font for bold, they think about what is the writing implement that led to the design of this typeface and how does it move as you're drawing this bold shape. And that leads to different kinds of balance in the forms than just taking a regular and thickening it up. That's right. You would you would think about contrast at different parts of the glyph and things right. like and that. Right. And like the relationship of the white parts of the letters to the black parts of the letters. That That's a very important part of type design. You know, you think about type designers as people who draw shapes, but they're thinking as much or more about the spaces in between and, and inside of those shapes. It's even more evident when somebody doesn't include the italic and everything just slants, yeah. right? Like I still see that on the web you know, today, which reminds me of like not having the right font file back in 1988 or something. Yes. So variable fonts are going to help with the bold, the faux bold issue, because you'll have the bold right there for free as part of the regular, right? They'll be part of the same flexible font. Mm-hmm. Now that's not going to be the case for italics. If you look at Garamond, right? So one of those old style fonts, you'll see that the the uprights the Romans, right? Regular, bold, semi-bold, light, all those upright letters. They're drawn in one way and they're easy to interpolate among, but the italics are a different design with a different point structure. And italics are not something that's going to be able to be a part of the variable font in the same way that weights and widths and other kind of stylistic flexibility will be. And what I think this is going to mean is that we're going to see demand for fonts that have obliques which are type designer intended slantedness. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an italic, but it's just, you see this a lot in sans serifs. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think that, you know, that because it will be easier to interpolate is going to be something that's part of variable fonts where true italics are not. And I think it's going to be hard to make a case to developers to include a separate italic variable font. I think that people will look for other ways to emphasize text besides italic. Uh, So you're going to see more bold text. You're going to see more use of fonts that have obliques. So you're calling it here on this podcast, the the death of italic. (laughs) I will say that I've tried to encourage my friends to write about the value of italics because (laughs) I'm kind of worried. (laughs) Uh, I think they're still valuable. You know, italics can be beautiful. This week's episode is brought to you by 
Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. So that was some of, I think, is still the sort of short-term benefits for why the variable fonts are interesting to uh, designers and developers out there. But longer term, there's some really big picture stuff here, yeah? Yes, longer term. Um, and I think this long term stuff is a big part of the general excitement around variable fonts. Long term variable fonts are going to help us make web design feel real. If you look at a website today, pretty much any website, it just doesn't feel good. And if you look at classic examples of good typography that are printed, they have this kind of magical quality to them, right? They, they just feel really, really good. And we can't have that on the web right now because websites flex and design has never had to flex like that before. It, only in the minds of designers has it ever had to flex like that. Like here's an example. I used to work uh, my first job out of college. I worked for the ad agency whose only client was Samsung Electronics. And I was the guy who made the landing pages that people would visit and they, after they accidentally clicked on a banner ad on a website. <laughs> and I worked with this team of people. There was four or five other people working with me, and their job was to produce a campaign of these banner ads every week. And there would be this array of ad banner dimensions, and they would split them up. I'll take these, you take these, and they'd have to typeset this same message in all those different formats, and it would have to work and look good in all those different That's a website. Right? We have to make a single thing stretch to fit many different formats in the way that 
a team of people used to do when they were producing individual static things. And there's no way to do that with the kind of tools we have today, the kind of fonts we have today. So what variable fonts are doing right now, it's very exciting to me, is they're helping people understand just how far we still have to go as we design websites. So give me an example. You're really talking about responsive web design, difference between, say, a, a browser layout on a, I don't know, you know, 5K iMac versus what it's going to look like on a handheld phone. Right. And we have sort of collectively as an industry decided that we would achieve this through things like media queries and breakpoints and stuff like that, where you would have a different set of style hints, right? A different set of CSS descriptions for each one of those different layouts that might appear on a different device. And, and I think what you're saying is we've never had really the, the typography been able to, at, a, at the level of the font, at the level of the typeface, be able to respond as well. That's right. So the thing about responsive design is that we've had this, and it's not about responsive design, it's about just web design. Right? We've, we've always talked about layout as a bunch of containers that we pour text into. And we talk about the layouts responding, and the text just sort of flows inside those containers. And the problem with that way of thinking is that type is about relationships. Like I said before, the type designers think very carefully about the balance between black and white shapes in a typeface. They think about the space between letters and the spaces between words. Those are very carefully measured amounts of white space. And if you extend that thinking to the text block, right? So you have your body text. It is very carefully considered balance in all of its counter spaces, which are the little white spaces in letters and its letter and word spacing apply that same careful balance to your line height in your text block, and you'll get a text block that feels really good. Apply that same thinking to the margins that surround your text block, and you get a space with a text block in it that feels really good. And what our responsive containers do is they mess with that balance that's in the text blocks. And so I think that the more opportunities we have to respond to the pressures that our layouts put on text, the better our websites are going to look. Mm. Variable fonts are another way to respond to that kind of pressure. Right, right, right. This has been an idea that's been around for a long time, right? Not necessarily the, the, the responsiveness of a particular design, but this idea of, of a, a sort of, well, it, back in, I think it was 1991, Adobe had released a technology called Multiple Masters, which took a, a sort of form of this, right? That you would get one font as the designer and use a tool to be able to find just the right width or, or weight of the font that you wanted in your document at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a long time ago. That's what, almost 30 years ago that we were, we were starting to, to do this. It didn't really catch on then. Do you have any sense of why it didn't work then? Well, I mean, the web is a big reason why it's working right now, uh, yeah. because, you know, there are immediate short-term gains to, to having this. Uh, I've talked with David Lemon a little bit. Uh, he's the head of the type group I mentioned earlier. He's, he's actually retiring early next year. A guy named Dan Radigan is taking his place, and, and Dan knows a lot about this history as well. But the reason that Multiple Master didn't really take off is because it was Adobe's idea alone, and we didn't do a good enough job of explaining the benefits to people, explaining why they would want to go through all of this uh, work to choose a point in a design space. And th there weren't the kind of benefits that we see because of the web, right? It's, it's what I said in print. What, what do variable fonts mean for print? 
they mean that you have all the in-betweens. Right, right. But if, but if you're making something static, you know, there are other ways you can compromise besides to pick a weight in between semi-bold and bold. You can enlarge the text a little bit maybe, or I don't know, there are, there are lots of different ways you can, you can respond. And, and so the benefits of multiple master files were not totally clear. Right. Uh, and there was a tooling problem as well. And mm -hmm. as you said, only Adobe was really supporting the technology. And, and there were many ways to do print design back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even within the Adobe apps, the, the support for multiple masters was pretty limited. Like Illustrator did it, but Photoshop didn't, which in my experience is a problem that Adobe still faces today between all of the product <laughs> groups and getting them all to work together and do things consistently and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Again, another 30-year problem, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, I have had some conversations lately uh, with design leadership in Creative Cloud. You know, they wanted to, to hear from me uh, about this very stuff. And so uh, I talked for an hour and, uh, about my ideas of this kind of what, what flexible design means and how typography is a part of it. Yep. And so they're listening. I don't know if they have always been listening, but they're listening now. Well, it also, to be, to be honest, shouldn't matter as much because we're talking about making web pages, which frankly you could do with a copy of a, of a variable open type font and a text editor. Yes. As we get there, we've got, like you said, there's nightly builds and WebKit and stuff like that. As we get more browser support, which we should talk about in a minute, ostensibly you, you, you don't need that support built into a whole bunch of tools because we can still craft the web by hand. Yes. So at the very least, it, it gives incentive for designers and developers to start experimenting right away without having to wait for a bunch of vendor support beyond, of course, the, the web browsers themselves. Right. The thing about tools, though, for me is like, Variable fonts are relatively new, you know, a few weeks since the announcement. But the kind of flexibility that they're encouraging people to think about is something that's been on my mind for a few years. And of course, you know, everybody who thinks about responsive design deeply and why it sometimes feels wrong has is right there with me, right? And the problem with writing code, and I, that's, that's my design tool of choice right now. I like CodePen. I go on CodePen. That's where I do my design work. The problem with that is that it's really hard to visualize the kind of multidimensional decisions that we have to make now and the relationships among those decisions. You can do it in code. In fact, code is the only way to articulate those decisions right now. No design tools will do what I think we need them to do right now. Right. But you can't see what's happening. Like I published a blog post uh, in August on, uh, on the Typekit blog called uh, Flexible Typography with CSS Locks. And CSS locks, I made this analogy to waterway locks, where you have this minimum level and a maximum level. And <laughs> yeah. in, in between two gates, right, you can have that level vary. Now, that kind of flexibility in the middle, in the lock, is something that, you know, we're going to need for all these different axes of a variable font. But the example I used in that blog post was line height. If you have a narrow paragraph, you want your line height to be kind of tight. And if you have a wide paragraph, you want to loosen up your line height to make it easier for people to move their eyes down to the next line. And so in establishing this, what I call a lock, you need to know the limits of the width of your text block. And you need to associate with those the minimum and maximum line height limits so that it knows the degree of flexibility to have within those limits. 
So that's a that's a direct relationship between the width of a paragraph and line spacing. And CSS does not make it easy to define that kind of relationship right now. Right. right. We did it with a with a CSS calc equation. And thinking about the kind of flexibility that's in variable fonts, my mind is kind of blown with how many of these calc equations we're going to need to make the type flex in all the ways we'll want it to in all the contexts that our websites already flex. Do you think, though, and this is something, honestly, that you and I have talked about for years, but that if you have so much data about the typeface, its context, the size the font is going to be, the width of the container, if you have all of this data available to you programmatically, don't you think that there could be some notion of a set of defaults that in this context, this font with this X height and this these settings that I want for bold and and uh, and width and stuff, there should just be a a almost like the the perfect realization of this font. Yes, yes, of course I think. I mean, you know that I've been been thinking about this for for a long time, and this is what I'm working on. I want to release this kind of defaults wherever Typekit fonts go. I want default decisions like this to be. And I think that the design tools that we need start with those defaults. And we don't force designers to make every little decision that the defaults put in place initially, but right. we allow designers to make adjustments from there, right? So if we have a default that says, you know, this is a good font size and pick any font for body text, here's a good font size. Here's your default. If that default generally looks a little too small to you, the designer, you should have a preference to increase the size a little bit. And that right. preference should carry from typeface to typeface. If we know the metrics that produce a reasonable size and we can incorporate your preferences, that's, that's the kind of tools we need, is tools that take a lot of this complexity and set them up as defaults so that all the decisions we're making are just subtle adjustments, refinements, instead of having to deal with the complexity from scratch. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think that looks like in the CSS itself? Like, the, we're going to need a, a bunch of new properties that kind of reach inside the font and be able to set some of this stuff? Yeah, it's, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, it's, it's taking shape right now. Uh, I had an idea for one aspect of it the other day. And uh, I, I started to share that idea on Twitter and people encouraged me to create an issue in the CSS Working Group's GitHub repository hmm. as a way to get my thinking in front of people who are actually uh, writing the CSS spec and implementing it in browsers. And so that's that's what we want right now is we want people, and I'll, I'll send you the link uh, when we're done here, but yeah. we want people with ideas to think uh, about how to share those with the folks working on specs and in browsers. I, I mean, I know several people who work on web browsers and are very excited about variable fonts, and they're not typographers, they're not designers. They really appreciate hearing from us. So to answer your question, how exactly will it look in CSS, I've seen a proposal that makes it kind of like font feature settings for enabling open type features. I mean, variable fonts are a component of the open type font format. So accessing the flexible axes of a variable font could kind of be like enabling an open type feature right. where, what, where what you're doing is you're, you're targeting a four letter open type code 
like if you're going to make the width flex, it could be WDTH. And then you specify a number after that, which is the degree of width that you want. I think that there are some limitations to that. Like, is that number, does that number represent the, like if it's 100%, if you put yep. width 100%, what does that mean? Right. Is that, that's the full, that's the, the widest that family, that variable font could ever be? Like, how do you specify that width, not as an absolute value, but as a value relative to wherever it started from, whatever the body text is looking like normally? And I think that kind of relative decision-making in code is something we need a lot more of. And I think variable fonts are going to challenge us to have more of that in the way we make design decisions. Yeah, I guess that's stuff that will get worked out in committee, as they say. Right? <laughs> uh, I've been involved in some of that back in my distant past with some of the CSS working groups and, and things like that. And it's a, it's a fascinating and horrifying process at the same time. <laughs> but, the, you know, how do you get people with various ambition and constraints to agree with one another? You, you just work it out. It takes a long time. Rough consensus and running code, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> So we got some tools to help the type designers uh, make fonts that support this. We got some work happening in the CSS standards groups. It sounds like the browser developers themselves are working on it. Is there operating system level stuff that we have to figure out as well? That's right. There is. Um, so let's say we've got the fonts. So how do you actually show these variable fonts? Like how do they appear on a screen? Uh, for, for, for any kind of font to show up on a screen, you need what's called a rendering engine. And people from the various companies in this working group work on such rendering engines. I wrote a blog post series at Typekit years ago about type rendering on the web. And the first layer of all of that complexity is rendering engines. This is why type looks different on a Mac than it does on a PC. It looks a little thicker on a Mac, just because of the rendering engine they use and its priorities. On a, on a Windows machine, there have been uh, various rendering engines over the years. And as those have been implemented in browsers, we've seen type rendering look better and better on websites. Just kind of feels kind of automatic. Uh, we don't get, uh, at Typekit, we don't get customers writing in complaining about type rendering in the way that they right. used to because the rendering engines have evolved. Right. And there, right. will, there will need to be a new rendering engine for variable fonts. And people in the working group are directly involved in that. They are working on the rendering engines that make this happen. Well, and to some degree, it's gotten actually a bit simpler in there in that we have so many high resolution screens, uh, you know, yes. the, the retina displays and stuff because so much of the rendering engines work that had to happen in the past were about taking the outlines in the font file and figuring out literally which pixels to turn on and off. And when you only have, you know, 72 or 150 per inch, that's a really big decision, There's, you know? And so the, uh, how that decision was happening yep. had everything to do with how not just the individual glyphs look, but how a paragraph felt and, and things like that. I think it's gotten just tremendously more consistent with the fact that you don't have to worry so much about which pixel is on and off because you have you know, hundreds of them per square inch now. Yep, that's true. So that's a big difference as well. It is, it's, and it's huge. Once you've got that though, right? So, so you've got some rendering engine that, that can actually show the font. Then you need browsers to support that rendering engine. I think, uh, you know, I'm optimistic about that because in this working group, we have companies who make the Chrome, Safari, and Edge browsers. And, and Adobe, who makes all these design tools, getting all those 
-hmm. versions of those, that software to use a new rendering engine that supports variable fonts won't be as hard as it would have been if this were a less collaborative specification. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, there's, I mean, it sounds like there's benefits for everybody, not just on performance, but uh, in things like even just, you know, internationalization and, and providing native glyphs for everybody who's surfing the web yep. uh, these days. So, And that just makes a frankly bigger audience for all of those companies involved. So yep. I'm surprised Facebook isn't involved. <laughs> <laughs> so variable fonts, I think a big step towards the kind of uh, ultimate vision for responsive web. What a, are there any other components missing? Anything else you're really looking forward to that we should start thinking about for the future? Well, I mean, it's really, like you said, people are going to be able to articulate design decisions in CSS. And variable fonts can be a part of the design decisions we make to uh, respond to pressure in compositions on the web. But I think there's there's just a ton of fertile ground when it comes to tools to help us visualize those decisions and to tools that present us with the kinds of decisions that we need to make and sometimes are not making. Right. You know, just just the kind of relationships like I talked about earlier, flexibility limits, right? If you want your your heading, let's say you have a, a big heading on your site and you want it to flex from being kind of narrow using a more condensed style to using a more expanded style when the when the viewport gets wide. Mm -hmm. You probably won't want to use the full range of flexibility in a variable font along that width axis. You'll want it to get sort of condensed, but not too condensed and sort of wide, but not as wide as the family can possibly be. Right. So, so how do you establish those limits? And it's not just for width, it's for pretty much every aspect of how a type family flexes in every way that we use type in a composition. There's a lot of flexible possibility. And I'm very interested in how you put limits around that and how you organize all the limits that you've established, right? What does your code look like? If you've got multiple decisions where before in, in typographic history, you, you had one, right? We don't just choose a, a font size anymore. We choose uh, font size limits. We don't, we don't, you know, it's, it's, it's that. It's really that, that kind of uh, multiple decisions where before we had only one. It, it's an explosion of, of complexity that we have to, I think, make clear before we can simplify. Well, to your point, it is remarkable that after a couple of decades now of doing web design, we don't have any dominant visual tools to do it. Yeah. There is no WYSIWYG web design tool that anybody who's doing professional web design is using at all. It's still very much mock-ups in some static image editor, Sketch or Photoshop or something like that, and then into the code. And I have always held on to some optimism that maybe someday we would uh, have a way to bridge that gap. But after all this time, I'm starting to I'm starting to lose faith. I think we may, we may can just continue to do it by writing the code by hand and keeping it organized the way you said and, and doing that as a very manual process. I just haven't seen anything. Yeah, the, when I think about it, I, I, I can't imagine an all-in-one design tool being useful in the way that those kinds of all-in-one tools have been useful in desktop publishing. I don't know if I'm right, but I feel like the future is tools that address the complexity we face 
but for specific reasons. I think a typesetting tool rather than a design tool that also handles things like layout and color might be more approachable. Mm -hmm. So it's really exciting to me to help tool makers who are experimenting with the future of design tools also think about typesetting and, and typographic flexibility as part of what they do. Right. Yeah. It's also interesting to see that the most development and, and pushing forward that's happening in the tool space has been around frameworks for people to use, either CSS uh, or JavaScript frameworks, along with tools for deeper collaboration between various people on the team. You put those two things together and we start to get to some kind of platform for doing this very iterative and very exploratory web design. So I do have optimism in those directions. Yeah, me too. I, I think that my problem with that kind of process is that I don't like the feeling of losing control. I feel like having frameworks, having a lot of conversations with other people, I don't know exactly what's going on in a composition the way that I used to know. And I think that my response to that kind of open-endedness is to understand better the nature of the thing that's flexing rather than just sit back and watch it and try to learn from it, right? I want to dig into it and figure out why it behaves the way it does. Although you got to keep in mind that giving up control is the first step to embracing what the web really is. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, this has been a great conversation. Um, I'm going to send people over to nicewebtype.com for a lot of your thinking and writing about a lot of this stuff and you and nice web type on Twitter as well. I think also there's, you've done a, a tremendous job at keeping up practice.typekit.com, which is, well, describe that site for me. Uh, that's a place for uh, people to hone their typographic skills. It's a website that I manage. It's a place where I hope students can learn. I hope teachers can use the lessons there to help teach. And I hope that professionals can stay sharp by reading and trying things. And personally, you're Tim Brown on Twitter, so we should all follow you there as well. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate your time. Fantastic conversation. And good luck with all of this stuff as it moves forward. Thanks, Jeff. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fein. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much. Thanks.